Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, Day of the Hunters by Isaac Asimov. This was first published in a magazine called Future, combined with science fiction stories, Volume One, Number Four, November 1950. Uh, I, I want to tell just briefly the audience why magazines have this. This sometimes combined with science fiction stories. What would happen is two two magazines would exist, and then one would be like doing badly, or two would be doing badly, and then so they try and get the subscribers from both uh, to shore up each other, and they would merge. It's kind of like a marriage, and then usually what would happen is eventually the second title, whichever one was less popular, will just go away. <laughs> right. And this happened a lot. Um, and it makes if you're like a magazine collector, you sometimes like don't know how to understand uh, what magazine goes with what because a lot of the titles are similar. But um, that's that's what we have here. There was two separate magazines, one called Future Science Fiction, and the other one was Science Fiction Stories, and they merged. And hope for a better future. Mm-hmm. Um, this story uh, is a little bit long. Uh, it's about 18 minutes to read. We're going to read it to you, and then we'll come back and discuss it by Isaac Asimov. Day of the Hunters. It began the same night it ended. It wasn't much. It just bothered me. It still bothers me. You see, Joe Block, Ray Manning, and I were squatted around our favorite table in the corner bar with an evening on our hands and a mess of chatter to throw it away with. That's the beginning. Joe Block started it by talking about the atomic bomb and what he thought ought to be done with it and how who would have thought it five years ago. And I said, lots of guys thought it five years ago and wrote stories about it. And it was going to be tough on them trying to keep ahead of the newspapers now, which led to a general palaver on how lots of screwy things might come true. And a lot of, for instances, were thrown about. Ray said he heard from somebody that some big shot scientist had sent a block of lead back in time about two seconds or two minutes, or two thousandths of a second. He didn't know which. He said the scientist wasn't saying anything to anybody because he didn't think anyone would believe him. So I asked, pretty sarcastic, how he came to know about it. Ray may have lots of friends, but I have the same lot, and none of them know any big shot scientists. But he said, never mind how he heard, take it or leave it. And then there wasn't anything to do but talk about time machines and how supposing you went back and killed your own grandfather or why didn't somebody from the future come back and tell us who was going to win the next war or if there was going to be a next war or if there'd be anywhere on earth you could live after it regardless of who wins ray thought just knowing the winner in the seventh race while the sixth was being run would be something but joe decided different he said the trouble with you guys is you got wars and races on the mind. Me, I got curiosity. Know what I'd do if I had a time machine? So right away, we wanted to know already to give him the old snicker, whatever it was. He said, if I had one, 
I'd go back in time about a couple or five or 50 million years and find out what happened to the dinosaurs. Which was too bad for Joe because Ray and I both thought there was just about no sense to that at all. Ray said, who cared about a lot of dinosaurs? And I said the only thing they were good for was to make a mess of skeletons for guys who were dopey enough to wear out the floors in museums. And it was a good thing they got out of the way to make room for human beings. Of course, Joe said that with some human beings, he knew, and he gives us a hard look. We should have stuck to dinosaurs, but we pay no attention to that. You dumb squirts can laugh and make like you know something, but that's because you don't ever have any imagination, he says. Those dinosaurs were big stuff, millions of all kinds, big as houses and dumb as houses, too, all over the place. And then all of a sudden, like that, and he snaps his fingers, there aren't any anymore. How come? We wanted to know. But he was just finishing a beer and waving a Charlie for another with a coin to prove he wanted to pay for it. And he shrugged his shoulders. I don't know. That's what I'd find out, though. That's all. That would have finished it. It would have said something, and Ray, I would have said something, and Ray would have made a crack, and we all would have had another beer and maybe swapped some talk about the weather and the Brooklyn Dodgers, and then said so long and never think of dinosaurs again. Only we didn't, and now I never have anything on my mind but dinosaurs, and I feel sick. Because the rummy at the next table looks up and hollers, hey. We hadn't seen him. As a general rule, we don't go around looking at rummies we don't know in bars. I got plenty to do keeping track of the rummies I do know. This fellow had a bottle before him that was half empty and a glass in his hand that was half full. He said, hey. And we all looked at him and Ray said, ask him what he wants, Joe. Joe was nearest. He tipped his chair backwards and says, what do you want? The rummy said, did I hear you gentlemen mention dinosaurs? He was just a little weavy and his eyes looked like they were bleeding and you could only tell his shirt was once white by guessing, but it must have been the way he talked. It didn't sound rummy, if you know what I mean. Anyway, Joe sort of eased up and said, sure, something you want to know? He sort of smiled at us. It was a funny smile. It started at the mouth and ended just before it touched the eyes. He said, did you want to build a time machine and go back to find out what happened to the dinosaurs? I said, I could see Joe was figuring that some kind of confidence game was coming up. I was figuring the same thing. Joe said, why? You aiming to offer to build one for me? The rummy showed a mess of teeth and said, no, sir. I could, but I won't. You know why? Because I built a time machine for myself a couple of years ago and went back to the Mesozoic era and found out what happened to the dinosaurs. Later on, I looked up how to spell Mesozoic, which is why I got it right, in case you're wondering. And I found out that the Mesozoic era is when all the dinosaurs were doing whatever dinosaurs do. But of course, at the time, this is just so much double talk to me. And mostly I was thinking we had a lunatic talking to us. Joe claimed afterwards that he knew about this Mesozoic thing, but he'll have to talk lots longer and louder before Ray and I believe him. But that did it just the same. 
We said to the Rummy to come over to our table. I guess I figured we could listen to him for a while and maybe get some of the bottle, and the others must have figured the same. But he held his bottle tight in his right hand when he sat down, and that's where he kept it. Ray said, where'd you build a time machine? At Midwestern University. My daughter and I worked on it together. He sounded like a college guy at that. I said, where is it now? In your pocket? (laughs) He didn't blink. He never jumped at us, no matter how wise we cracked. Just kept talking to himself out loud as if the whiskey had limbered up his tongue and he didn't care if we stayed or not. He said, I broke it up. Didn't want it. Had enough of it. We didn't believe him. We didn't believe him worth a darn. You better get that straight. It stands to reason because if a guy invented a time machine, he could clean up millions. He could clean up all the money in the world just knowing what would happen to the stock market and the races and elections. He wouldn't throw all that away. I don't care what reasons he had. Besides, none of us were going to believe in time travel anyway because what if you did kill your own grandfather? Well, never mind. Joe said, yeah, you broke it up. Sure you did. What's your name? But he didn't answer that one ever. We asked him a few more times, and then we ended up calling him Professor. He finished off his glass and filled it again very slow. He didn't offer us any, and we all sucked at our beers. So I said, well, go ahead. What happened to the dinosaurs? But he didn't tell us right away. He stared right at the middle of the table and talked to it. I don't know how many times Carol sent me back, just a few minutes or hours before I made the big jump. I didn't care about the dinosaurs. I just wanted to see how far the machine would take me on the supply of power I had available. I suppose it was dangerous, but is life so wonderful? The war was on. One more life. He sort of coddled his glass as if he were thinking about things in general. Then he seemed to skip a part in his mind and kept right on going. It was sunny, he said. Sunny and bright, dry and hard. There were no swamps, no ferns, none of the accoutrements of the carboniferous we associate with dinosaurs. Anyway, I think that's what he said. I didn't always catch the big words, so later on I'll just stick in what I can remember. I checked all the spellings, and I must say that for the liquor he put away, he pronounced them without stutters. That's maybe what bothered us. He sounded so familiar with everything, and it all just rolled off his tongue like nothing. He went on. It was a late age, certainly the Cretaceous. The dinosaurs were already on the way out, all except those last little ones with their metal belts and their guns. I guess Joe practically dropped his nose into the beer altogether. He asked Skid halfway around the glass when the professor let loose that statement, sort of sad-like. Joe sounded mad. What little ones? With whose metal belts and which guns? The professor looked at him for just a second and then let his eyes slide back to nowhere. There were little reptiles standing four feet high. They stood on their hind legs with a thick tail behind, and they had little forearms with fingers. Around their waists were strapped wide metal belts, and from these hung guns. And they weren't guns that shot pellets either. They were energy projectors. They were what, I asked? Say, when was this? Millions of years ago? That's right, he said. They were reptiles. They had scales and no eyelids, and they probably laid eggs, but they used energy guns. There were five of them, 
They were on me as soon as I got out of the machine. There must have been millions of them all over Earth, millions scattered all over. They must have been the lords of creation then. I guess it was then that Ray thought he had him because he developed that wise look in his eyes that makes you think, that makes you feel like conking him with an empty beer mug because a full one would waste beer. He said, look, Professor, millions of them, huh? Aren't there guys who don't do anything but find old bones and mess around with them till they figure out what some dinosaur looked like? The museums are full of these here skeletons, aren't they? Well, where's their one with a metal belt on them? If there were millions, what's become of them? Where are the bones? The professor sighed. It was a real sad sigh. Maybe he realized for the first time he was just speaking to three guys in overalls in a bar room. Or maybe he didn't care. He said, you don't find many fossils. Think how many animals lived on Earth altogether. Think how many billions and trillions. And then think how few fossils we find. And remember, these lizards were intelligent. Remember that. They're not going to get caught in snow drifts or mud or fall into lava except by big accident. Think how few fossil men there are, even with these sub-intelligent ape men of a million years ago. He looked at his half-full glass and turned it round and round. He said, what would fossils show anyway? Metal belts rust away and leave nothing. Those little lizards were warm-blooded. I know that, but you couldn't prove it from the petrified bones. What the devil? A million years from now, could you tell what New York looks like from a human skeleton? Could you tell a human from a gorilla by the bones and figure out which one built an atomic bomb and which one ate bananas in a zoo? Hey, said Joe, plenty objecting. Any simple bum could tell a gorilla skeleton from a man's. A man's got a larger brain. Any fool can tell which one was intelligent. Really? The professor laughed to himself, as if all this was so simple and obvious it was just a crying shame to waste time on it. You judge everything from the type of brain human beings have managed to develop. Evolution has different ways of doing things. Birds fly one way, bats fly another way. Life has plenty of tricks for everything. How much of your brain do you think you use? About a fifth, that's what the psychologists say. As far as they know, as far as anybody knows, 80% of your brain was no use at all. Everybody just works on way low gear, except maybe a few in history. Leonardo da Vinci, for instance, Archimedes, Aristotle, Gauss, Galois, Einstein. I never heard of any of them except Einstein, but I didn't let on. He mentioned a few more, but I've put in all I can remember. Then he said, those little reptiles had tiny brains, maybe quarter size, maybe even less, but they used it all, every bit of it. Their bones might not show it, but they were intelligent, intelligent as humans, and they were boss of all Earth. And then Joe came up with something that was really good. For a while, I was sure that he had the professor, and I was awfully glad he came out with it. He said, look, professor. If those lizards were so damned hot, why didn't they leave something behind? Where are their cities and their buildings and all the sort of stuff we keep finding of the cavemen? Stone knives and things. Hell, if human beings got the heck off of Earth, think of the stuff we'd leave behind us. You couldn't walk a mile without falling over a city and roads and things. But the professor just couldn't be stopped. 
He wasn't even shaken up. He just came right back with, you're still judging other forms of life by human standards. We build cities and roads and airports and the rest that goes with us. But they didn't. They were built on a different plan. Their whole way of life was different from the ground up. They didn't live in cities. They didn't have our kind of art. I'm not sure what they did have because it was so alien I couldn't grasp it. Except for their guns. Those would be the same. Funny, isn't it? For all I know, maybe we stumble over their relics every day and don't even know that's what they are. I was pretty sick of it by that time. You just couldn't get them. The cuter you'd be, the cuter he'd be. I said, look here, how do you know so much about those things? What did you do, live with them? Or did they speak English? Or maybe you speak lizard talk. Give us a few words of lizard talk. I guess I was getting mad too. You know how it is, a guy tells you something you don't believe because it's all cockeyed and you can't get him to admit he's lying. But the professor wasn't mad. He was just filling the glass again very slowly, no, he said, I didn't talk and they didn't talk. They just looked at me with their cold, hard, staring eyes, snake's eyes. And I knew what they were thinking and I could see that they knew what I was thinking. Don't ask me how it happened. It just did everything. I knew that they were out on a hunting expedition and I knew they weren't going to let me go. And he stopped that. And we stopped asking questions. We just looked at him. Then Ray said, what happened? How did you get away? That was easy. An animal scurried past on the hilltop. It was long, maybe 10 feet, and narrow and ran close to the ground. The lizards got excited. I could feel the excitement in waves. It was as if they forgot about me in a single hot flash of bloodlust, and off they went. I got back in the time machine, returned, and broke it up. It was the flattest sort of ending you ever heard. Joe made a noise in his throat. Well, what happened to the dinosaurs? Don't you see? I thought it was plain enough. It was those little intelligent lizards that did it. They were hunters by instinct and by choice. It was their hobby in life. It wasn't for food. It was for fun. And they just wiped out all the dinosaurs on the earth. All that lived at the time anyway all the contemporary species, don't you think it's possible? How long did it take us to wipe out bison herds by the 100 million? What happened to the dodo in a few years? Supposing we really put our minds to it, how long would the lions and the tigers and the giraffes last? Why, by the time I saw those lizards, there wasn't any big game left, no reptiles more than 15 feet maybe, all gone. Those little demons were chasing the little scurrying ones and probably crying their hearts out for the good old days. And we all kept quiet and looked at our empty beer bottles and thought about it. All those dinosaurs, big as houses, killed by little lizards with guns, killed for fun. Then Joe leaned over and put his hand on the professor's shoulder, easy-like, and shook it. He said, hey, professor. But if that's so, what happened to the little lizards with the guns, huh? Did you ever go back to find out? The professor looked up with a kind of look in his eyes that he'd have if he were lost. You still don't see. It was already beginning to happen to them. I saw it in their eyes. They were running out of big game. The fun was going out of it. So what did they? So what did you expect them to do? 
they turned to other game, the biggest and most dangerous of all, and really had fun. They hunted that game to the end. What game, asked Ray. He didn't get it, but Joe and I did. Themselves, said the professor in a loud voice. They finished off all the others and began on themselves till not one was left. And again, we stopped and thought about those dinosaurs, big as houses, all finished off by little lizards with guns. Then we thought about the little lizards and how they had to keep the guns going even when there was nothing to use them on but themselves. Joe said, poor dumb lizards. Yeah, said Ray, poor crackpot lizards. And then what happened really scared us because the professor jumped up with eyes that looked as if they were trying to climb right out of their sockets and jumped at us. He shouted, you damned fools. Why do you sit there slobbering over reptiles dead a hundred million years? That was the first intelligence on earth and that's how it ended. That's done. But we're the second intelligence and how the devil do you think we're going to end? He pushed the chair over and headed for the door, but then he stood there just before leaving altogether and said, poor dumb humanity, go ahead and cry about that. It's get, It gets better. This story's really good. Um, I want to direct everybody to look at the PDF um, because there's a terrific illustration by Luros. Um, and uh, what I like about it is I think this is uh, our narrator and maybe his fellow uh, uh, companions at the table there, other than the professor, imagining this, the scene that we are imagining when we hear this story as they do. And we see in the picture the professor inside what essentially looks like a, uh, a radio tube. <laughs> um, and he's, he's oh, naked. Oh, Jesse. It's a, not radio a radio tube. What are they called? <laughs> it, it it doesn't look like a radio tube to me, my friend. Is, Sometimes a radio tube is only a radio tube. <laughs> but come on. He's got that that pole going up next to him with a round globe on top. Mm-hmm. And he's naked inside this long oh, it's cylinder. Def- there's definitely some sexual stuff going on here. But uh <laughs> it's it's not it's 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 not a traditionally these kinds of tubes are are test tubes, and it's not that. It's much more like a one of the ones you put into a radio before, before transistors. Right? Sure, it looks like a vacuum tube. Vacuum tube, that's what it's called. And it's got the uh, strategically placed metal bars to block out his nipples and his genitals. <laughs> yep. But more importantly, the daughter there, her name is Carol in the story, by the way, she is wearing overalls, uh, just like the protagonists of this story or the guy sitting around telling... Uh, hearing this story and writing it down for us uh, are wearing and also she's naked <laughs> and she's wearing like a pearl necklace um, while she's operating the machinery in the, in the upper picture um, we I gotta see, tell you the truth my daughter and I have never been in a similar scene that's what I'm saying is that this is um, this is this is a bit of a uh, what they would you know this is already a tropey story from 1950 um, Heinlein Oh, no, sorry, no, not Heinlein. It's a kind of Heinleining story in a way as well. Asimov uh, knows that the uh, brilliant professor, mad professor, and his beautiful daughter is a trope. That's why Carol's in here. <laughs> Normally, you have a lab assistant at a university, not your own daughter. But 
the beautiful daughter uh, is there to be illustrated and to be imagined. And and then we see the dinosaurs shooting each other, pointing, putting their pistols at each other. Um, so th- there's a bit of tropes and such going on here. It, it includes the one about, uh, and then there wasn't anything to do, but talk about time machines and how supposing you went back and killed your own grandfather or dot, 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 right? So th- this is a self-aware science fiction story. But as I'm reading it, I'm like making note. That's a good point. That's a good point. That's a good point. I make them over and over again because this is this is a supposition story. This is like we have this problem, you and I, Eric. The dinosaurs existed. We found their bones. We see them in the museums. But why did they stop existing? And everybody has theories, right? <laughs> the most current one is there was an asteroid. Oh, another one is climate change, right? Um, this theory is a little farther out there. It's that the dinosaurs killed themselves. It's a very specific kind of dinosaur, uh, like humans, uh, went out there and killed themselves. But to support it, Asimov doesn't just like um, have the story itself. He also has the guy making points. And the points that he makes are all things that you and I would probably agree are good points. Like, um, for example, evolution has different ways of doing things. Birds fly one way, bats fly another. And insects fly yet another way, right? Um, a million years from now, could you could tell... Well, you, a million years from now, could you tell what New York looks like from a human skeleton? Could you tell a human from a gorilla by the bones and the figure out of which one built... And, and figure out which one built an atomic bomb and which one ate bananas in the zoo? And the answer is no, right? So he's making good points, and he supports it throughout with these good points. And there's actually a kind of interesting dynamic in the way this story is told with the Ray Manning, Joe Block, and the unnamed narrator talking about, you know, a ga- they're sort of like, if I had a time machine... And then some third party comes in and says, well, let me tell you, I built a time machine and I destroyed it. And they're like, yeah, sure you did, bud. Right? And they keep talking about how we're going to get him. You can't get him. They're playing a game. But ultimately, at the end of the story and at the beginning of the story, too, our narrator is like, this is disturbing. I'm upset. <laughs> I feel sick because learning facts about ancient things from millions of years ago and seeing those bones in the museum and then realizing, yeah, we could be tripping over things that are the relics of previous civilizations every day and not know it is disturbing. This is the the problem of deep time. You can't walk the earth and think uh, it's... It's young and new if you really pay attention to some of the details. And so when we start thinking about what happened to the dinosaurs, ultimately, we have to start thinking about what's going to happen to us. Who's going to kill us off? Who's our worst enemy? It's probably not an asteroid. So this is a monetary story, obviously. And it's full of humor. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that the illustration is actually 
uh, a silly tack on. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the story, the illustration, I think, has other things that work deeper. For instance, going back to the illustration, which is adding a trope, because mm-hmm. except for the naming of Carol, there is no sexual subtext going on in nope. this story. Um, it's it's a completely male story, and if we think stereotypically in 1950 that the the hunting lizards are themselves male, the only nod to females is the daughter Carol. But if you look at that illustration, there is a, as you said, a, a, a necklace around her neck. There is, by contrast, a tiara-like headband around the scientist's head. Mm-hmm. So we have woman as as flesh and man as brain, and we have the lizards with a belt around their middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then up on the corner there, we have a planet yep. with a ring around it. So this notion of ringedness, that what happens... What goes around comes around, mm. and it includes space exploration and time exploration and sexual exploration. There's really quite a lot in this illustration, mm-hmm. but it doesn't happen to have much to do with the story, except for the idea that, as you said, we look to the past to find out about our present. It's a monetary story. It's only five years after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. Of course, people are wondering what to do with the atomic bomb. What Asimov has done is made it a story about what to do with time machines. Mm -hmm. But really, at the subtext, it's about what to do with the atom bomb. But that subtext, as is common with Asimov, he just comes out flat and tells it to you. He doesn't expect his audience to be smart enough to really get it on their own, or if they do... He says, well, I'm just as smart as you are, mm-hmm. and explicates it. He does that in book and story after book and story, mm-hmm. and he does it here. And it's frankly, despite his efficiency and terrific imaginations, one of the reasons that I don't enjoy Asimov very much, mm-hmm. because I don't like having everything explained to me. However, there is a subtext to that subtext, and it's got and it ties back to, to Naked Carol. It's got to do... With the overalls it's got mm-hmm. to do with the difference between beer and liquor mm-hmm. it's got to do with the difference between education and non-education it's got to do with the fact that it's the brooklyn dodgers that we're worrying about we're not in manhattan and the knowledge comes from midwestern university mm-hmm. there is a, a confluence here of of pointers to issues of class sex economics the only thing that's left out is race Mm -hmm. and it lets us know that we're on the side of the working man because we like his voice and we like his his sarcasm Mm -hmm. and we like the fact that he's trying to improve himself by looking things up we're on the side of the working man but the only reason the working man is happy is because unlike the eggheads he doesn't know, right? Mm. So the uh, the working man is down below. The egghead is up above, but it's not a good place to be. You put that together in a story for people who are 14 years old in 1950, and it's a way of saying, see, you're going to get smarter, mm. but you're going to do it better than the last generation because you're getting the warning now. It's a story about 
growing up through class age education and uh, in that sense it suggests that uh, you dear reader in 1950 you can learn from the day of the hunters and find a way to bring the world to peace it's uh, at that deepest level a subtle story yeah, it, it's it, 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 we, before the podcast started, we talked about, you know, I was saying Lovecraft, no, Lovecraft. I keep thinking Lovecraft because this is, this is Lovecraft's message. Uh, Asimov is fluffy. <laughs> he, he doesn't ha- usually have these deep themes hidden under the surface. It is very surficial. But in seeing that picture, I'm like, Whose point of view is this, right? That's not the narrator's, the inner narrator's point of view. This is the outer narrator's point of view, sort of. Actually, it's the magazine editor's point of view. And this this story has right at the beginning, um, right at the beginning. And I said lots of guys thought it five years ago and wrote stories about it. That is the atomic bomb. This is a story that is aware of science fiction magazines. And the guy who's telling us this story, the unnamed narrator, was a reader of those magazines. The other guys at the table were not. They were reading Railroad Magazine or Radio Operator Magazine or whatever whatever it was. But the idea that science fiction actually has value for telling you something about reality, that's what this story is saying. And I, I think he's right. I think he's right. And I think that's why this story works. I agree. That's why, as simple as it seems on first reading, and as laughable as the illustration seems on first observing, there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.